hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. Hi, it's Patrick Cox here, and I have a question. Do you pronounce your name differently, depending on where you are, or who you're talking to, or maybe which language you may be speaking? I think I do that, but only a little bit, and only really in response to how other people may pronounce my name. My last name, in particular, comes out in all kinds of ways. Some of my friends find this very amusing. I'll leave you to fill in the blanks. But I don't live in the multilingual world that Gaston Doran inhabits. Personally, I say Gaston Doran. Gaston is Dutch. When I introduce myself in English, I would say Gaston Doran. Many Dutch speakers would say Gaston Doran. And in Spanish, they would say Gaston Doran. I used to have a German grandmother-in-law who would say Gaston Doran. I don't think I've ever come across anybody who's got a name that could be pronounced in so many ways. When you said it at first, the way that you pronounce it, you dropped the N at the end, right? It sounded almost French. I made it nasal, uh, Gaston. That's how the French pronounce it. And it is a French name, so that's why I sort of keep it that way. From Quiet Juice and the Linguistic Society of America, this is Subtitle, stories about languages and the people who speak them. Today, a conversation with Gaston Doran, speaker of six languages, learner of many more. Okay, I'm calling him Gaston, English style. It's like he's already graciously given me permission to use the English pronunciation. Gaston himself feels completely at home, switching languages back and forth, which fascinates me. I mean, I live in pretty much a monolingual world. I think that most of us native English speakers do. Well, Gaston, he grew up speaking one language at home, another at school, and the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth... They just followed, seemingly naturally. So, to the home language, that's perhaps the most obscure one, Limburgish. Time for another name check. Gaston Dore. When I say it that way, I can hear my mother speak, so I suppose, yes, that would be the Limburgish uh, pronunciation. Gaston Dore. And, and what is Limburgish and who speaks it? Uh, Limburgish is the regional language spoken in much of the Dutch province of Limburg and also the Belgian province of Limburg. It's spoken by, I guess, about a million or so people. A million people? And I'd barely heard of it. The thing is, Limburgish isn't regulated like other languages are. No one's gone on the record and said, this is Limburgish and this isn't. It's just a floating collection of dialects, which makes it fun. No one's going to correct you. I spoke it every day when I, up to my 18th birthday, I mean, until I left the region. I would speak it, not in class, because there you would speak proper Dutch, but in the schoolyard and with friends, with most friends anyway, in shops, and it was the language of daily communication. The hamsters be, die blieven, die een ganse leven blieven, oh, een boek zet gestart. Yep, this is Limburgish, and yes, 
Gaston is singing it, performing for me in his living room in the Dutch city of Amersfoort. Geographically, Limburgish is hemmed in. Other languages are all around. There's Dutch, of course, that's everywhere. And there's German, less than 20 miles away from where Gaston grew up. And French, not much further. At school, though, Gaston learned in Dutch. Which is why, for a while, Dutch had a kind of formality to it in Gaston's mind. Limburgish was closer to his heart. But over time, that changed. I've never even had a relationship with a Limburgish woman. So all my intimate life has been well, either German, actually, or Dutch, but never Limburgish. I suppose that makes a difference, too. Limburgish is somewhere in between Dutch and German. Not just the pronunciation and the vocab, but the grammar. It's a mix. In that part of Europe, there's a lot of mixing. When I was nearly 15, I fell in love with a German girl. And since I had some German, I learned at school, and she had no Dutch, we usually spoke uh, German. And, well, as we all know, a relationship or love is the best way to learn a language. So German, Dutch, Limburgish. Gaston was effortlessly trilingual. It was just the linguistic facts on the ground. Spanish followed. There was time spent in Latin America. And English was always in the background. When I got my first job, where I noticed that having Spanish is useful, but having English is more useful, I set out to improve my English. And actually, I became very friendly with with a native English speaker. The idea was that I would teach her Dutch and she would teach me English, but the first bit never worked out. So often the way non-native English speakers learn English because it's almost a necessity. Like, it gives them the keys to the house. The other way round, for us English speakers to learn another language, it's not the same. We already have the keys to the house. Learning Dutch or any other language, that's our basement conversion or garden shed. If it doesn't work out, we'll still have the house. Gasson, though, he made sure he had the key to the front door. Living in Holland, I need a lot of English. I mean, reading books, internet... Nowadays, I listen to podcasts and audiobooks and all of that is in English. And since my book was translated into English, I have more direct contact with the English-speaking world. Gaston's book is called Lingo, Around Europe in 60 Languages. It's a great read that makes you realize how a language's grammar can be caught up in the culture of its speakers. He's written a second book since called Babel, Around the World in 20 Languages. Back to the episode in a few moments after I tell you about the subtitle newsletter. Yes, we have a fun little missive that'll pop up in your inbox every two or three weeks. It's a breezy five-minute read, some language-themed news, some previews of future episodes, and of course, some goofy lingo stuff. How do you get to read this charming and amusing and free newsletter? Just sign up at subtitlepod.com dot com slash newsletter. That's subtitlepod.com slash newsletter. Gaston's first book on the languages of Europe mentions 60 languages. Now, if you're wondering about that number, well, it's nothing official. It's just the number of languages he chose to write about. But if you're interested, and 
you're still listening to this episode, so you may well be interested. The number of European languages still spoken today that originated in Europe, in other words, indigenous European languages, that number is somewhere between 225 and 275. That sounds like a huge amount to me. But the majority of these languages are spoken by very few people, fewer and fewer each year. At the other end of the scale is the number of official languages in the European Union, which covers most but not all of Europe. That number is 24. Then there are all the languages spoken by immigrants to Europe and their families, the top three being Arabic, Chinese and Hindi. I don't know if there are any Europe-wide estimates of exactly what this number is, the number of immigrant languages. If you know, please let me know. But I'm guessing it probably runs into at least the hundreds. Okay, so these 60 languages that Gasson's first book focused on, some are homegrown, some are imported. And his interest in the imported languages began when he lived in cosmopolitan Amsterdam. I mean, I would go to this Ethiopian restaurant like once a month. I had a Moroccan neighbor who spoke Arabic and also Berber, if I remember correctly. So yes, I was aware that there was this linguistic diversity, this these linguistic riches right at my doorstep. And I didn't know the first thing about them. Well, I knew what they looked like. I mean, the, you would see the Arabic script and there was this Turkish travel agent which would offer trips to Izmir and Istanbul. And to my surprise, he would put a dot on top of the capital I. And I wondered, why is that? And the Ethiopian guy would write in their script, Happy New Year and Merry Christmas, well, vice versa. And it, it looked amazing. So, yeah, I wanted to know more about that. That's how it started. And how, um, what did it teach you? Not just about the languages, but about the people. About the people? Frankly, and this is a bit of an embarrassing statement, not all that much. But that is not saying anything about the languages. It's more saying something about myself. I'm really interested in the languages. And obviously, I'm interested in people generally. But unlike much of the linguistic journalism that you do, which is very much about society and individuals and their history, which I admire and like listening to, I'm not very good at that. I'm more into the mechanics of language and the sounds and the grammars and the history. And it's really a different flavor of language writing. So Gaston gets all obsessed about scripts and alphabets and diacritical signs, like those dots over some Turkish vowels. And he studied eight of these Amsterdam immigrant languages, which taught him what exactly? What it taught me, well, we talked about Limburgish earlier on. And when I was in my teens, I began to compare the two linguistic systems, the two languages that I had in my head, uh, the Limburgish and the Dutch system. And I found all these differences and similarities. Now, I took that one step further when I did these eight languages, which I never spoke, right? I mean, I only read about them. And I saw that these small differences between Limburgish and Dutch would sort of translate into huge, but somehow similar differences between Dutch or English and these languages from all over the world. Because in the end, all languages have to do the same thing. I mean, they are there to enable person A to make something clear to person B. And to do that, they have to have recognizable sounds and they have to say, look, this is the thing I'm talking about, this is the other thing I'm talking about, and this is the relationship between those two things. And therefore, they have grammar and phonology and vocabulary. And every language, even those languages like Turkish and, and Papiamentu and, and Kurdish, have to find solutions to solve those problems. 
So in the end, there's always a point of comparison. But in the meantime, you come across the most amazing uh, differences. Do you see certain things and you think, gosh, I wish Dutch had that? <laughs> the ability to do that, either in the writing system or in the grammar? Uh, there is one thing in, in English. Actually, what I'm going to say will irritate some listeners because I know that it's a controversial thing. But I love the ability of English to verb nouns. I think most languages do that to a degree, but English is particularly flexible at that. And I love it. And Dutch can't do that? Well, there is one thing, there's one characteristic, one feature of Dutch that English doesn't have, uh, or no longer has, I should say, and that is to make a verb, we have to add a suffix. And to make a verb that sounds mm, convincing or sounds natural, we often also have to add a prefix. So you end up with a longer word, and it will not always work. Not all nouns will lend themselves to being verbed. For instance, I find there's a word for holidays or vacation in Dutch, which is simply vacancy. And I find it hard to imagine turning that into a verb. I mean, that would be something like vacancie, I guess, but it sounds horrible. And I'm not saying this, hopefully, out of conservatism. I mean, I would love it to work, but I, I don't think that would ever find acceptance. So, so you would have to add a verb, like I'm going on vacation. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah actually, there is an English word called holidaying. I, I didn't realize it when I gave the example, but holidaying is an existing word in English. Or vacationing. Or vacationing, even. I didn't know that. Yes, it's a good example, then, of what English can do and what Dutch, what to my mind anyway, other people may disagree, uh, would have trouble um, accepting that word. The more languages you know, or know how they work, the more you see these things, patterns and possibilities in other languages that you may not be able to reciprocate in your mother tongue. Gaston's really good at this. Of course, how he thinks about languages depends on his relationship to each of them. He's more analytical about languages he learned at school and college. But for his mother tongue, or tongues, Limburgish and Dutch, well, the words, they just come out. He's not analytical about them, which means he's much less aware of what he's saying, like with pronouns. Dutch is one of those languages where nouns and pronouns have genders, masculine, feminine, or neuter. But a linguist, Jenny Ordring, she recently found evidence that a gender shift is taking place in Dutch, and most Dutch speakers, including Gaston, weren't aware of it. What Dutch speakers believe they say is when they use pronouns, he, she, and it, they use them in agreement with the genders of the nouns in question. Here's an example. The Dutch word for glass. Its gender is neuter. So if you're following the grammatical rules for gender agreement, you'd refer to that glass as it. Likewise, the word for cup is masculine, so you say he. Feminine nouns become she. This is the theory. This is the system on paper. This is what we think we do. But what Jenny Ordering discovered in her research is that we use, well, the equivalent of she only for females, uh, women, girls, etc. And some animals that are very obviously female because we know them personally, you know, like your cat or if you're a farmer, your cow is a farmer, you know that a cow is a female. That's kind of it for the she pronouns nowadays. The Dutch just don't use she for other words, even when the gender of the noun in question is feminine. And guess which pronoun is taking over? Yep, he. Draw whatever conclusion you will from that. He is used for pretty much all things and objects 
whatever their gender. The Dutch call all of them he, or as they say in Dutch, hey. He has become the Dutch it. Except that Dutch already has an it. It's the neutral gender. And these days, just like the feminine gender, it's not being used very much. This gender shift, and it's only happening in speech, not in writing, it's unconscious. More than that, the Dutch are in denial. People get caught out referring to a glass of water with he instead of it. And when you point that out to them, they will say, oh, sorry, my mistake. I normally don't do that. Actually, they do that all the time. And so does Gaston, as the linguist pointed out to him. She would occasionally say, heard what you just said? Ah, yes, right. And at first I too said, I don't normally do that. And then after the fourth time or so, I, well, I could not pretend that was true. I mean, she was absolutely right. Very embarrassing at first. <laughs> this all makes it a bit difficult, Gaston says, to write naturally. If you write according to the way that people have started to speak, some people will complain that you're violating Dutch grammar. But if you write the, quote, proper way, your prose may soon seem antiquated. Or maybe it won't. We may need a few decades, maybe a few centuries, to find out which way prevails. I recorded this conversation with Gaston in 2016, though I've added some updates along the way, and here are a few more. In addition to Babel, his second book that appeared in English, Gaston also wrote a couple of books in Dutch. The first has a fabulous title, a kind of blend of Dutch and English. Die Dutchenary. Dutchenary, if that's how you say it. It's about English expressions, new and old, containing the word Dutch. The second is called, I'm not going to attempt this in Dutch, Seven Languages in Seven Days. It teaches Dutch people how to decipher the texts of certain other European languages. Frisian, which we've done an episode about, Danish, Norwegian, Swedish, Italian, Spanish, and Portuguese. And I don't think it's going to come as a surprise when I tell you that Gaston is learning some new languages. He mentioned Vietnamese and Polish to me. Well, learning Vietnamese was a three-year experiment that he gave up on. Polish is still ongoing. It's been four years, and he says it's going well. Give or take some faux pas, sometimes a little X-rated, like you say one thing and it turns out to be some, you know, body part or sexual act or something. Moving on, Gaston also wrote this song. It's called Mother Tongue. And I was blessed when I was young. She gave the best. She had to give her tongue. Her mother tongue. Many thanks to Gaston Doran, who is a tremendously supportive person. He just has this endless fascination with languages and how they work. And he's generous and humble with his knowledge. I really appreciate that. Thanks also to Alison Shaw, who manages Subtitle Social Media and writes the newsletter. Hint, hint, subtitlepod.com slash newsletter. Thanks also to everyone at the World Public Radio Programme. 
Subtitle is a member of the Hub and Spoke Audio Collective. We're a bunch of independently-minded podcasters who just are curious about the world around us, whether it's science, tech, arts, or all of the above, which language can be. So let's hear it for some more of those Hub and Spoke podcasts. Out There, Rumblestrip, The Lonely Palette, Ministry of Ideas, and many more. Check them out at hubspokeaudio.org. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. See you in a couple of weeks. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.